Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the comments team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canadaland supporter. So, from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to canadaland.com slash join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. This is train engineer Tom Harding calling rail traffic control when he sees the town of Lac Megantic on fire. Yard is gone. Flames RJ are uh, 200 feet high. It's incredible. You can't believe it here. From the river right to the station. What the fuck happened? I don't know. I don't know. And this is another phone call when he realizes that it was his train and his mistake that set the town ablaze. It's worse than that, my friend. Why? It's, uh, it's your train that rolled down. No. Yes, sir. No, RJ. Yes, sir. Holy Tom Harding wasn't even supposed to be working that day. It's his day off, but the other locomotive engineer is on holidays, so Harding agrees as long as he can start an hour late. The cargo he's carrying began its journey around 4,000 kilometers away in Newtown, North Dakota. It moved through Minneapolis, Milwaukee, Chicago, and Detroit, and then up into Windsor through Toronto before it finally reached Harding just outside of Montreal. Harding is alone on the train. He gets it rolling and notices there are some real problems with the lead locomotive. It's surging and spewing oil. It takes him twice as long as it should, but Harding finally pulls into a small town called Nantes. It's 11 o'clock at night. Harding parks his train here, right on the rail line. The train is still smoking. He calls into the rail traffic controller, and they say they'll take care of it in the morning. So Harding leaves the train with one of the locomotive engines running right there on that hill in Nantes, 11 kilometers above the lakeside town of Lac Magantic, Quebec. Attached to the locomotives are 74 tanker cars. 
Each one is filled with 113,000 liters of highly explosive crude oil. And 10 minutes later, the train is on fire. Firefighters race to the scene and try to put out the blaze, but water only makes it worse. The firefighters do the only thing they can think of. They press the big red button that shuts off the locomotive. It works. The fire goes out. But what they don't realize is that it also shuts off the air brakes that are keeping the train in place. The rail company sends someone to check in on the train, but the man doesn't understand that shutting off the locomotive meant the air brakes were disabled. Slowly, over the next hour, the air leaks out and the 10-ton train, filled with highly explosive oil, begins to move. Down below that hill, it's a typical warm summer night in Lac-Megantic. People are out walking the streets, enjoying the evening. Many of them are at a nightclub called the Music Café, taking in a reunion show of two popular Quebec musicians. It's about 15 meters from the track. The train is rolling down the hill. Jean-Luc Montmagny was a firefighter. He'd helped put down the fire on the train earlier that night. As he's heading home, he stops at a rail crossing. It's flashing red, but he doesn't hear a whistle, doesn't see any lights in the distance. Figuring it's just malfunctioning, he decides to cross. Right then, the train whooshes past him on the track. Something's very wrong, and he calls 911. The train is picking up speed. The hill above Lac Megantic is one of the steepest in the country. André Blais lived close to the tracks, just past the point where the hills slope down even further. The ghostly train rattles his house as it passes. The train gains momentum as it's bearing down on Lac Megantic, and the wheels give off white-hot sparks. Gilles Fluet had been in the music cafe that night. As he walked across the tracks, he sees the train speeding towards him. He dives out of the way, but the heat from the friction alone burns his shirt into his skin. The train is traveling at 105 kilometers an hour when it hits a sharp curve in the center of town. The locomotive cars stay on the track, but behind them, 50 oil tank cars fly off the rails. They puncture, pile up on top of each other, and begin disgorging millions of liters of explosive crude in the center of the city. There's a small explosion, then another, and another, and another, and then... Oui, t'inquiète pas pour moi, okay? Oh mon dieu! Oh mon dieu! Oh my god! Oh my god! A tsunami of fire envelops the city. Lac Megantic was the deadliest rail disaster since Confederation. 47 people died that day, and the youngest victim was only four years old. Six years later, no one has been held truly accountable for the tragedy. And outside of Quebec, Lac Megantic has already been relegated to history. But the deep causes that led to this catastrophe haven't gone away. More and more oil is being shipped by rail than ever before. And the safety of those trains is still in question. There are accidents all across the country that should make people wonder, could Lac Megantic happen again? And if it does, could the devastation be even worse? 
I'm Archie Mann, and from Canada Land, this is Commons. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This episode is brought to you in part by the Douglas Mattress. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. One of the best, and I mean the best things you can do for yourself, is to get a good quality mattress. The time is now, people. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress protector, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. So we've been making comments for five years now. It's over a hundred episodes and counting. And our plan? Well, it's to keep making more seasons, even more episodes. And when I say we, I don't just mean the Commons team. I'm including you, our listeners and supporters. We can't make this show without you. We can't keep bringing you exceptional reporting every week without your support. We want to make it as easy as possible for you to become a Canada Land supporter. So, from now until the end of May, we have a special deal for our listeners. Sign up now for just $2 a month for the next six months. You'll get access to all the episodes of Commons one week early and ad-free, as well as exclusive bonus content from all of our shows. There's discounts on merch, tickets to our live events, and so much more. This is a limited-time offer, and it's a pretty great deal that helps support our journalism. Just go to CanadaLand.com join or click the link in your show notes to become a supporter today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. I was supposed to go to the music cafe to to see my friend, to just relax after the day. And it was uh, uh, 10 minutes before one hour and I decided to don't go because I was tired and I said, okay, no, uh, I don't go. And I was on, on my car and to go back to the home and I saw in my retrovisor the big ball of fire in the sky. Inside of Music Cafe, some people thought that the explosions and the lights were an asteroid. Their instincts were to duck under the tables and stay inside. Christian Lafontaine quickly grabbed his partner, Melanie, and ran for the exits. And he hauled his girlfriend out, and they got out on the patio, and they saw the, the river of flame that was just was rolling towards them, and they just ran for the Chaudière River, and, the, and, and they survived. My name is Bruce Campbell. I'm the author of The Lac Megantic Rail Disaster, 
public betrayal, justice denied. Yvonne Rosa and Natalie Gee had just left the bar when they saw the train barreling down. They hid between two buildings as the rivers of flame blazed around them. Rosa and Gee ran to the water. They were heading for the marina because they had a, a boat on the arena and they got there and basically jumped in, in the water and, and saved themselves that way. At the local hospital, the staff knew that something terrible had happened. The people at the hospital who saw what was happening and were preparing for, you know, to take in people who were hurt, people who were burned, people who were wounded, and, but, but no one came. And I tell the story of them waiting for people to appear and no one appeared. And, and, and finally, it, someone just said, you know, this is, there are no survivors and that was basically the case, uh, with, with a few exceptions. The fires that burned through Lac-Megantic were over 1,600 degrees Celsius, so hot that water from firefighter hoses evaporated before contact. The disaster zone was twice the size of Ground Zero after 9-11. Firefighters were brought in from the rest of Quebec and from Maine, but there was little they could do. You can't really fight a, a fire of that magnitude. The, the most important thing that you can do is evacuate. As the townspeople were confronting their immense loss, anger began to boil against the company that owned the railroad, Montreal, Maine, and Atlantic. The owner of that railroad, Ed Burkhart, didn't show up to the town for four days. And when he arrived, he was defensive and confrontational. You see, you see, people are always putting words in my mouth. But, it, but you're, but you're talking about you're talking about the fire department did. You're talking about the track man did. I'm looking. I'm looking at a series of causes, a, a series of events that occurred. I think the non-fire department uh, played a role in it, and that the facts. This, this is facts. That doesn't mean that we're holding these people uh, out to dry as being the guys that have uh, caused this tragic accident. Uh, the deaths in Lac Megantic didn't end the night of the crash. One of those firefighters who was pulling bodies out of the wreckage actually pulled his ex-girlfriend. His name was Kevin Moran. And the trauma of that, he was a new firefighter, and the trauma of that was just too much for him. And within months, he committed suicide. Yvonne Ricard, one of the two musicians playing at Music Cafe that night, was having a cigarette outside when the train exploded. He was able to escape, but he was haunted by the death of his friend Guy Balduc, and he took his own life two years later. Lac Megantic was forever changed by the disaster. Uh, there was a uh, shoe store. It's not there anymore. On the other side, there was a big brick building, four apartments on two, store, uh, two floors. Up. It's not there anymore. After that, there was this small boutique. It's not there anymore. The other one was a driving school. It's not there anymore. After that, it's a uh, lawyer's building with uh, an engineer. And everyone wanted to know how something so horrific could have been allowed to happen. What's clear is that the road to Lac Megantic begins long before Tom Harding ever took the train out of Montreal, well before even the explosive crude oil was loaded onto it in North Dakota. For Bruce Campbell, it starts in the 1980s with Brian Mulroney. So he came to power on support of the big business uh, 
lobby with, to really push those policies of deregulation, of cuts, of privatization. The entire system that regulated railway safety was remade, and the companies themselves were essentially put in charge. But they basically let the companies set those rules. You know, that's when it started. When you let the fox be in charge of the chicken coop, you need to have someone with a pretty big gun guarding the fox. Railways have always been powerful, but before that, you had a tension between the regulator and the regulated industry. Those days were over. Now, the federal government wanted to play nice with the railroads. That continued during their years of liberal reign in the 1990s, when funding for Transport Canada was cut in half, and a new breed of railroad companies was coming into being, focused on cutting costs to the bone. And no one represented this era better than Ed Burkhart. This company, in the ten and a half years that it's, uh, it's been in existence, has never had a significant mainline derailment on its own on its own tracks uh, until until uh, uh, this this tragic event. That's Burkhart at a press conference after Lac-Megantic. He was pretty much of a of a hardliner, kind of laser focused on his bottom line on on cuts. Burkhart ran railroads in the U.S. and New Zealand and Eastern Europe, and he created Montreal, Maine, and Atlantic in 2001 by buying bits of other bankrupt companies. And he started the, the cutting process uh, pretty soon thereafter. This was uh, kind of a delinquent company, and, and then far from fostering a culture of safety by their actions, they were fostering uh, basically a culture of ne- negligence. Burkhart was especially focused on getting approval to run trains with only a single person on board. It's easy to understand why running single-person trains is more dangerous. If something goes wrong, there's no one else to fall back on. And even though regulators pushed back on Burkhart's efforts to run one-man trains, he essentially forced it through. But you remember I told you that, that the companies were in charge of the operating rules. And in 2008, 2009, they negotiated a loophole which enabled companies to operate single persons or apply for permission to, get, to operate single person trains. The transportation regulators trusted companies to make decisions about safety. And they were doing this at a time when an entirely new industry was beginning to boom. There's an oil boom going on right now, not in Saudi Arabia or Kuwait or any of those places, but 600 miles north of Montana in Canada. In the 2000s, the oil sands and fracking were both taking off. And there just weren't enough pipelines to handle all of the crude, so companies looked to the rails to ease their burdens. In 2009, there were around 500 oil cars on Canadian track. By 2013, it was 160,000. Soon, you had massive 70, 80, 100-car trains moving through Canada and the U.S. filled to the brim with oil. Canadian regulators just didn't have the resources to make sure everything was done safely. On the Quebec office was by this time hardly had any staff, didn't have the capacity to do the kind of oversight that it, it wanted to or it should have been doing. The rail companies were more or less policing themselves, They were hauling more and more of a dangerous explosive product. Trains were being staffed by a single engineer. By that time, the die was cast. It was just a matter of if uh, or or when and where, not, not if. And it was just kind of Russian roulette. About a year after the derailment, 
Tom Harding, and two other low-level employees were arrested and charged with 47 counts each of criminal negligence. I'll tell you is that the, uh, the proof, the evidence that, were, that was gathered by the, the police was submitted to the Crown Prosecutor and the Prosecutor decided uh, to take accusation of this nature against three, three person and the company. But none of the executives of Montreal, Maine, and Atlantic were charged. Bizarrely, the company itself, this defunct shell of a company, Montreal, Maine, and Atlantic, which had gone bankrupt within a month or so, was charged criminally, but none of its executives were charged. It was clear that Harding and the others had made mistakes. The worst was not setting enough handbrakes on the train, even though he was told by his higher-ups not to do so in order to cut costs. He was warned against setting too many handbrakes. So he sent less. He should have sent more, set more handbrakes that night. There's no question about it. I mean, that's something he'll have to live with for, for the rest of his life. When the verdict came down, all three men, including Harding, were acquitted. He spoke publicly only once, and he directed his words to the families and friends of the victims. I do not find the words sufficient to express my sympathies. I'm deeply sorry for my part of responsibility in this tragedy. I assume this responsibility now, and I will always assume it. Some victims' families were upset by the verdict, but others saw Harding and the two other workers as scapegoats. It was the executives who set the rules and made the policies that they wanted to see take responsibility. Here's Jean Clusio, who lost his daughter Kathy during the explosion. I felt that the, uh, how can I say it, the, when they arrest them, they treat them as rotten fish. That's what I thought. And since then, what do you think it happened in their mind of these three guys? When we all know that's not the real person who has to be sit in the bench of the accusers. Harding and five other employees would eventually plead guilty to non-criminal charges for not properly securing the train. Harding was given a six-month conditional sentence that he served in the community. And when the three men were were acquitted, the prosecutors decided not to proceed with the charges against the company. And so there you had no, no one criminally charged, the owner, the executives, no one. The Transportation Safety Board's investigation came to its own conclusions about what caused the crash. The context starts with MMA, a short-line railway running its operations at the margins, choosing to lower the track speeds rather than invest more in infrastructure, cutting corners on engine maintenance and training, and then relying on employees to follow the rules. This was a company with a weak safety culture a company where people did what was needed to get the job done, rather than always following the rules. A company where unsafe conditions and unsafe practices were allowed to continue. Which begs the question, who then was in a position to check on this company to make sure safety standards were being met? Who was the guardian of public safety? That is the role of the government to provide checks and balances, oversight. And yet this booming industry where unit trains were shipping more and more oil across Canada and across the border 
ran largely unchecked. Despite their tone, Bruce Campbell believes that the report was a whitewash and obscured how much Canadian regulators had allowed this to happen. As he began to report on Lac Megantic, people began reaching out to him with troubling information. Got in a brown envelope form a copy of the original team investigation report. And then I had a, a, a draft that was done a couple of weeks later. It was basically the document with track changes, and they'd removed all of the causes and contributing factors related to single-person train operations. According to Campbell's reporting, there was significant pushback to the first draft by the railway industry, Transport Canada, and even the Prime Minister's office. After the Transportation Safety Board's report and the acquittals, people in Lac-Megantic still felt there had been no justice done. There have been some positive changes to safety rules. The most dangerous tanker cars are being phased out, single-person trains no longer run, and changes have been made to how air brakes are used. But Quebecers still want more action. And so there was a unanimous resolution in the Quebec National Assembly in April of 2018, basically calling on the government uh, to hold an independent judicial inquiry to answer the many unanswered questions about what happened, why it happened, who is responsible. But Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has declined to call an inquiry. Have things changed to prevent another tragedy on the scale of Lac Megantic? Like Lac Megantic, Winnipeg is a railway town. Winnipeg is a very rail-focused city, goes back to the start of the two railroads, they sort of intersect in the city of Winnipeg, and if you've ever been there, there's rail everywhere. The tracks go around the baseball diamond, they go right through downtown. My name is Dylan Robertson, I'm the Ottawa correspondent for the Winnipeg Free Press. You know, people are skating kind of like the Rideau Canal, and you look up and there's a big sort of black tank car rolling through the community. Um... Shaw Park, the baseball diamond, the rails go right sort of around the curve of the diamond. It's sort of everywhere in the city. And there's also the the rail yards themselves. In the years since Lac Megantic, there's been more oil traveling by rail than ever before. And much of it is going through major cities like Winnipeg. Why are pipelines so controversial in Canada and yet you look outside your window and you have what seems like a pipeline on rails, and no one is really talking about it. And there are reasons to worry about how safe these pipelines on rails really are. And one of them is worker fatigue. Scheduling happens at the last minute. And on cross-Canada journeys, engineers will stay in bunkhouses, but those often don't even have enough beds. And workers are often only given eight hours from the minute they leave the train to when they get back even if a hotel is an hour away. Tom Harding had worked 17 hours the day of Lac Megantic. That's the medical equivalent of being intoxicated. And there are other signs that the rules still aren't being followed. One incident in particular has Winnipeggers worried. In 2016, a CN rail warning system for runaway trains began to malfunction. What ended up happening is every time a CN train entered Winnipeg, the alarm went off, and that probably happens at least 12 times a day, probably double that. Um, And so what they did at the office was shut off the alarm system. The alarm system was shut down for at least three months. 
it seemed almost like a metaphor for how a lot of this seems to be going. There was another serious incident in Portage La Prairie this January. Where you had two oncoming trains and they didn't collide head on. The locomotive of one of them struck some of the cars. This was at the site of a bridge where it's a double line track and it becomes a single line over the bridge. A lot of our readers had this question about, like, how does it happen in 2019 that you have two trains heading towards each other and they collide? Like, under what situation is that acceptable or normal? A lot of the people we spoke with in Winnipeg say, why would I trust CN when this stuff happens? Despite the dangers associated with oil on trains, the rail companies won't even tell Canadians how much of the stuff is passing through Canadian cities. I think the amount of responsibility that this industry has, there should be a commensurate level of scrutiny, and I can't think of any other industry in Canada that evades these sorts of questions about how much business you do, where is it located, what do you have in place. It's really not open. And railways in Canada have a very particular history where, you know, they have their own police force, they have their own enforcement powers, they have their own rights of way. And we accepted that trade-off as a country because they were so much a part of settling the modern state that is Canada. The number of runaway trains has been increasing. From 2016 to 2018, the number of train accidents involving dangerous goods went up by 25%. So you've got a situation where the volumes are continuing, where the safety risks are still there, you know, where the the possibilities of of a recurrence of major, major accident with with loss of life are still there. The citizens of Lac-Megantic have been pressuring governments and railroad companies to increase safety standards. But then there are those who are out on the tracks every day. They're they're monitoring the condition of the tracks and the speed of the locomotives and the contents of the trains. Robert Bellefleur, the head of the Lac-Megantic Citizens Coalition, was driving back to town from the criminal trial in October 2017. As he came into Nantes, he saw a convoy of rail cars sitting on the hill in the same location that Harding's fateful train had once been parked. It was sitting there without a locomotive or a derailleur. Four months later, another train was parked there again. It had 29 cars full of highly explosive propane. He says it sat there for 30 minutes without a locomotive, without an engineer, and without handbrakes. Bellefleur was stunned. If we tolerate such risk factors in Lac-Megantic, the site of the most destructive railway tragedy in Canadian history, what is happening elsewhere in Canada, he said. That's your episode of Commons for the week. This episode relied on reporting done by Bruce Campbell and Dylan Robertson, and there was just so much we couldn't fit into this episode, so I really hope you'll check out Bruce's book, The Lac-Megantic Rail Disaster, as well as Dylan's reporting in the Winnipeg Free Press. 
Just look up Alberta Crisis Winnipeg Danger for his excellent investigative series. If you want to get in touch with us, you can tweet us at Canadaland Commons, that's C-M-N-S. You can also email me, arshi at canadalandshow.com. This episode was produced by myself and Jordan Cornish. Our managing editor is Kevin Sexton. And our music is by Kevin Sexton and Nathan Burley. If you like what we do, please help us make this show. You can support us and get ad-free podcasts by going to patreon.com slash CanadaLand. Jen, there's an election coming up in the fall, and you may have noticed that Canadian politics has gotten a little bit bonkers recently. I mean, there's the SNC-Lavalin affair. Nazis are back now, I guess. There's Jason Kenney's civil war. Doug Ford is blowing up Ontario, and apparently PEI is now powered by fish. The point is, so much crazy shit is happening right now that it can be hard to keep up. That's why we're here. As the election looms, our podcast, Oppa, will keep you informed about the week in Canadian politics. Along the way, we're going to be speaking to Canada's top politicians, a whole bunch of the bottom ones, and everybody in between. So listen to Oppo for all the twists and turns as the election comes. That is O-P-P-O, and you can find it wherever you get your podcasts.